This sermon was recorded at the Midtown Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Our scripture reading this morning is Isaiah chapter 66. It can be found on page 625 in the black-covered Bibles. Isaiah 66, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them. Because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen. But they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my name's sake have said, Let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy, but it is they who shall be put to shame. The sound of an uproar from the city, a sound from the temple, the sound of the Lord rendering recompense to his enemies. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause to bring forth, says the Lord? Shall I, who cause to bring forth, shut the womb, says your God? Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her. All you who love her, rejoice with her in joy. All you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast, that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you shall nurse, you shall be carried upon her hip and bounced upon her knees. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall see and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass. And the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants. And he shall show his indignation against his enemies. For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger in fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. 
For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment, and by his sword with all flesh, and those slain by the Lord shall be many. Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go into the gardens, following one in the midst, eating pig's flesh and the abomination and mice, shall come to an end together, declares the Lord. For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory, and I will set a sign among them. And from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pool, and Lud, who draw the bow to Tabal and Javan, to the coastlands far away that have not heard my fame or seen my glory. And they shall declare my glory among the nations, and they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and in chariots and in leaders and on mules and on dromedaries to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord. Just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord, and some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Good morning. It's so good to see all you wonderful, smiling faces. Uh, my name is Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, this is your first time. Welcome. If this is your hundredth time, welcome. Also, I'm also glad that you are here. Um, it's good to be with everyone and to finish up Isaiah. We've been here for a long time, uh, and we're actually finally done. This is our last week in it. Um, so I'm going to pray, and then let's just jump in and see what this last word from Isaiah has for us. So uh, will, you, will you pray with me? God, this, this, um, this book and this passage was written to people who were experiencing chaos who did not know what the future held, who were uncertain in their life, their relationships. It was written to people like us. And your message all throughout it is that the most important thing that we can do is worship you, is see you, is see who you actually are. You're the God who is high and lifted up above everything. You're the God who sits enthroned in the heavens. This whole world is just like a footstool before you. You're really big. You're really strong. You're really strong even right now when everything seems uncertain and chaotic around us. And just like, just like Andre said, you are the one who's high and lifted up, and you're also the one who comes really near to us, and you get down on our level, and you speak tenderly to us. 
So God, we have a really hard time holding all those things together. We have a really hard time holding together um, the instability, the sadness, the chaos that we feel in our world. We have a hard time holding that together with how big you are, with how tender you are, how you come to us. So will you give us grace? Will you give us hearts that do hear your word, who tremble at your word, who see you, who know you, who know your voice? Um, So God, we are coming here before you as your children through Jesus and we'll go wherever you follow. So will you help us and will you give us grace? I pray all this in your name, amen. If, I, if I'm counting right, this is our 51st sermon in Isaiah. We started this January 10th, 2021. Some of you have been here for more than a year and not experienced anything other than Isaiah. Uh, we've really taken our time going through this huge, massive book. And one of the reasons that we decided to do Isaiah in the first place is if you rewind the clock back to January 2021, the end of 2020, our world was crazy. It was super chaotic. We were right in the middle of a political presidential transition. COVID, anxiety, and uncertainty was through the roof. We as a church were like right off the heels of a pastoral transition. We're looking to move buildings, move from the place that we've been worshiping for years to try to come over to this place. Everything felt really chaotic and everything felt really uncertain and shaky. And so in the middle of all that, we wanted to actually commit ourselves to walking through a book that would remind us over and over and over again of who God is and what he does and how he meets us in times like that. In a world that was chaotic and uncertain, we wanted to look at something that would be certain, which wasn't just like, oh, I know that I'll get Isaiah when I show up to church today. Like what we need in those times in our lives is a vision of the God who is with us, who's holding everything together, even when everything feels like it's falling apart, and reminding us of how we are to approach him. For thousands of years, Isaiah has been a book that people have come to in really uncertain, chaotic times because Isaiah really clearly shows us a picture of who God is. And I love how Eugene Peterson describes the way that Isaiah does it. He says, Isaiah doesn't just convey information. Isaiah doesn't just say two plus two equals four. God is this and this and this. Therefore, this. Isaiah creates visions. He delivers revelation. He arouses belief. He is a poet in the most fundamental sense, a maker, making God present in that presence urgent. And so if you haven't gotten anything in this time in Isaiah, I hope you've gotten that God is the Holy One who is big, who is powerful, who is beyond our comprehension, and yet invites us to worship him, to find Wholeness to find healing in him. In the middle of the chaos of life, Isaiah is always redirecting us back to God. He doesn't say, hey, the way that you manage whatever is going on in your life right now is by doing this program or 
thinking these new thoughts or getting this person into political office or securing and consolidating power, financial security for yourself. He says, hey, all of those things at the end of the day will leave you wanting because God alone saves. And this God who saves is inviting us to worship him. In the middle of uncertainty, he's inviting us to come to him, to see him for who he really is, to respond to him, and to be picked up and carried by him into the future and into the world that he is creating. And Isaiah 66 is all about worship. It's all about repeating those same things that we've seen over and over and over over again. It shows us the dangers of false worship. It shows us the beauty of participating in God's new creation through worship. It gives us this picture, this final picture, in case we've missed it, over the last 65 chapters of who God is and what God is doing. He says, hey, God will always be faithful. God will always be faithful. No matter what's going on in the world around you, no matter what was going on in Jerusalem in the time that Isaiah wrote, no matter what is lost, God will be faithful to bring redeeming love and restoration and transformation, and you can build your life on that. So in this last sermon um, in Isaiah, Isaiah is just going to show us again One final time, a picture of the God who saves. He wants us to look again on this God. He wants to remind us again of the world that God is bringing. And he wants to make it really clear about the person who catches God's eye, the person who God sees, the person who God moves toward so that we can participate in everything that God is doing. So, that's, that's, that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at the God who saves. We're going to look at the world that God is bringing. And we're going to look at the kind of person that God invites into that new creation. So if you have your Bibles open, um, look down with me to Isaiah 66, verse 1, where we see this picture of God and an invitation to come to him and worship. Isaiah 66, 1, thus says the Lord. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All of these things my hand has made. And so all of these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. So Isaiah is pointing us back to the temple. That's what these first two verses are talking about. The temple is this place where God's presence dwelled on earth. It was the place where people came to worship him, to know him, to receive forgiveness, cleansing, atonement. And Isaiah wants to remind us that, hey, the thing that we put our hope in isn't this building that's made of stone The thing that you should be looking at and putting your hope in is the God who made everything. So he's he's asking all these questions. He's saying, hey, look, look at the universe. Look at the world. I made everything. 
He said, I sit, look, look, look out into the night sky and look up into the universe. He said, hey, do you want to know where I sit? Do you want to know where my throne is? It's there. That's how big I am. That's how powerful I am. Do you want to know what I prop my feet up on? It's the world. Like the, the world is so small and insignificant compared to me and my power that it's just like a footstool. Why does he bring this up? Um, throughout the Bible, throughout the Old Testament, it's the story of God who is working to actively bring his presence into the world and live in relationship with people, with, with humans like you and me. And so when God makes the world in Genesis chapter one, he makes this garden temple. That's what Genesis 1 is all about. It's this place where God is bringing order. He's bringing life. He's bringing flourishing. His presence is going to live there. And then he puts people there so that God can dwell intimately and richly in relationship with people. That's what God has been after all along. God didn't create the world because he needed something. God creates the world out of an overflowing love and desire to share like, the beauty and the glory that he has inside of himself with us. And so he makes us not because he needs us to give him something. He makes us out of love, overflowing love to live before him. And if you keep reading the Bible, you know everything went wrong, Right? Um, that peace, that relationship is broken and shattered and impacts everything in the world around us. So instead of living in a garden temple where God's presence is dwelling richly, we are cut off, not just from God, but from each other, from the world, from um, our neighbors. And things are chaotic and feel out of control. But the rest of the Old Testament unfolds. God is not content to just like brush his hands, move on, try something else. God is always on a mission to reestablish what has been lost, which is presence, which is relationship, which is intimate communion with him. So he calls this people Israel. And he says, hey, I'm going to put my love on you. I'm going to put my name on you. You build this little tent, right? And it's going to be like the first step back to filling the world with my presence and my glory again. The tabernacle is going to be this sign that God is going to be present again with his people. The story fast forwards, Israel's established, they live in Jerusalem, and they build this temple, which by the way, if you read those dense, tedious Old Testament passages describing how it's made, the temple is made to mirror Eden. It's made to point back to the time when God did dwell with his people, when God was um, in full relationship, unmediated before them. But the temple is just a sign. It's just, a, it's just um, a reminder of God's commitment that he is going to reestablish relationship. There's a problem, right? We humans try to box God in all the time. We, we look at the symbol that God gives us and we make that the ultimate reality. And so instead of looking at the commitment that God has made to dwell with his people, um, the people started to look at the temple as the sign of hope. The temple was the place where everything would be okay. If the temple was just there, then we're going to be okay because the temple is what makes us right with God. The temple is, is what makes us okay. The temple is where like, we're, we're going to put things right again. And God says, hey, just 
time out real quick. Whatever made you think that I could be contained in four walls, in one place? He said, I made everything. I sit high and exalted above everything. And the way that you actually come to me is with a trembling heart. God's mission to redeem and remake and save everything was never dependent on a place or a structure. God is always reaching out and saying, hey, I'm not contained by this. I'm not gonna be stopped or slowed down when things go wrong. You cannot control or box in what I have committed to do and establish. And if you want to get in on what I'm doing, you come to me with a worshiping, trembling, awe-filled heart, looking at me and responding and living like who I am is actually true. It's actually real the way that God describes himself. It's not just a metaphor. It's not hyperbole. God is actually that big and that committed to bringing salvation and restoring worship, which is what we were made for. Worship is not just singing. It's not just what we did together when the band was up here. Um, Worship is that, but worship is looking at God, seeing him for who he is, and then responding to him like orienting everything in our lives around him, valuing God as God, submitting ourselves to God and his words. That's worship. God, God doesn't need us. God doesn't need this building for us to actually worship him. It was never dependent on that. And so I, I, I love what we get to do when we come together um, in this place to worship. I love that we're here. God doesn't need this building. He doesn't. God will do everything that he purposed to do, whether or not we're meeting here or we're meeting in a parking lot or we're meeting in like a a park. God is always going to do what he will do. And what he's looking for isn't just a cool building, isn't just cool systems and structures. He's looking for hearts who will tremble before him who will see him, who will respond to him and say, yeah, I see that. And that is what I am going after. I'm going after the God who promised he can make everything right again. I'm going to orient everything in my life around him. He's the one who's high and lifted up, who can't be contained or constrained by anything. And he's the one who comes to us right here, right now. And to be a disciple of Jesus is to hold both of those things together and faithfully go after him, which is worship. And every time we do that, Isaiah says, we're actually not just singing, not just doing something cool uh, in ourselves. We're actually participating in the new world that God is bringing right now. And as this chapter continues, Isaiah describes that world for us. He describes the world that God is bringing. Look with me at verse nine. So he's continuing on. He's been talking about the dangers of false worship in the few verses that follow what we just read. Um, And then 
in the face of this like false worship, God is setting forth a picture of a pregnant woman. And in verse nine, he says, shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause it to bring forth, says the Lord. Shall I who cause to bring forth shut the womb, says your God. He says it twice to emphasize it. Rejoice with Jerusalem. Be glad for her. All you who love her, rejoice with her in joy. All you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast, that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. For thus says the Lord, behold, I will extend peace to her like a river and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. God says, even though the world around us is full of uncertainty, full of reminders that things are not the way that they're supposed to be, I'm bringing something into the world right now. And the way he brings it isn't like instantly. It's something that grows and is nurtured over time, like a baby grows and is nurtured over time in its mother's womb. And he says, if I started that If I started that new work, then will I not be faithful to finish it? God finishes the things that he starts. I live in an old house. It was built in, I think, 1946, post-World War II, which means that I have things falling apart all over the place. Um, And I am not handy, so I do my best. Um, But there's a list of projects that I have where we're like, oh, it'd be great. It would be great to do that. The problem is like, A lot of times I start something or I get the idea for something. I buy the supplies for something and I just don't follow through on it. No one else is right. No one else is like that. Right. Um, Months ago, our, our address numbers are really weird, funky. Like I don't like them. And so like months ago, I bought new numbers to put up for our address. Haven't done anything about it. Like for months, they've just been sitting there. It would take me five minutes to, to pull it off. But For whatever reason, I just get busy, I let other things get in the way, and I just let it slide and slide and slide, and it still has not gotten done to the frustration of my wife, my gracious, long-suffering wife. God says I'm not like that. I don't abandon projects halfway through. I don't start something. I don't make plans for something. I don't dream up something without actually doing it or following through on it. So this world that he's bringing is not going to be unfinished. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause it to bring bring forth? Am I going to put in all of this work and then not actually be faithful completely to the end to make sure that it happened? Why would I do that? If I started it, God says, I will finish it. You can count on it. He says the end of God's work looks like rejoicing, overwhelming joy and satisfaction in Jerusalem, which, if you remember, has been a place of sadness. It's been a place of mourning. It's been a place of darkness and loss for the people who are reading this. Jerusalem is not a place of rejoicing. But God says... The work that I am doing, the new world and new creation that I am bringing is going to be joy that is overwhelming, that meets us at the deepest points of pain and loss in our life. At the places where things are most acutely not okay, that is where God says he is going to bring redemption, bring joy, and bring peace that's going to flow like a river. We're not good at peace. 
in the world. Like we're not, we're not good at peace. Um, like, I mean, just look, read, read the news. People fight. Like we get in conflict all the time. Think about our own relationships. There's so much conflict. There's so many things falling apart in our world right now. And think about everything inside of yourself. Um, we're really, really restless. We get bored really, really easily. We're constantly on the move, constantly looking for ways to fill the time. There are very few moments in our lives where we experience something that genuinely feels like peace. Yet the promise that God makes is that he's bringing a world that is full of peace. It's, have you ever driven across a river after it rains and it's just like swollen, rushing forward, nothing can stop it? Um, I remember when I was in college, we had like these torrential rains and downpours. I went out to a river that was close to campus and just saw like massive oak trees getting swept away. Um, when floods and rivers are flowing, nothing can stop it. Instead of a destructive flood, Isaiah says, God says, hey, the peace that I am bringing, the flood that I am bringing is actually peace. It's actually wholeness. It's restoration. It's my presence with you the same way that a mother is with her child when the kid isn't okay. Like, do you hear the maternal kind of imagery for the way that God says he's going to be present with his people? He's not, he's not gonna show up um, and just smash everyone who comes to him. He says, no, I'm going to actually get down on your level and comfort you the same way a mom picks up her kid when he falls and skins his knee at the park. That's the kind of world that God is committed to bringing. That's the way that God says he's going to live and dwell with his people. And then from there, he actually says, if you, if, if you think that's great, it's, it's just getting started. Like, look up. I'm going to expand your vision. I'm going to expand your categories for what I am doing in the world right now because this isn't just going to be about Jerusalem being redeemed. This isn't just going to be about um, this group of people being redeemed, being made new. It's going to be worldwide. Worship of God, the presence of God is going worldwide. The nations, the glory of the nations are flowing in like an ever-flowing stream. The temple was never the end of the story. God's presence contained to one place was never God's vision for the future. His presence was not going to be constrained to a spot or a people. Look at verse 18. God says... I know their works. I know their thoughts. The time is coming to gather together all tongues and nations. They shall come, everyone shall come and see my glory. And I will set a sign among them. And from them, I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pole, and Lud, who draw the bow, to, the bow, to Tubal, and to Javan, to the coastlands far away that have not heard my fame or seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the nations. If you wonder what that's all about, God is literally saying, hey, the, the, the farthest ends of the earth that you can imagine, the places that aren't accessible, that's where I'm going to go. That's where I'm going to draw people in from, from the ends of the earth, they are going to come to me. The people who have not heard my fame or my glory will see it. 
I'm going to bring the entire world back to me. And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and on dromedaries, which is camels. And I don't know why the smart person who translated it didn't just say camel instead of dromedary. Those are the things that frustrate me, if you're wondering. It's like, bro, it's the same thing. Just call it a camel. They're going to bring them to my holy mountain, Jerusalem, says the Lord. Just as the Israelites bring their grain offering a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. And some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. This is the vision. This is the picture. This is the project that God is at work accomplishing right now. This is what it looks like for God to dwell in the midst of his people. He's bringing us who have been scattered to the furthest parts of the earth and bringing them back home. And remember, like he's, this, this is written to people who are in exile, who were removed from home. And God is saying, when I come, when I bring my new world, it is going to be a homecoming. It is going to be a reunion where everything that was lost will be remade and restored, where one people of God will gather together from every single corner of the world, worshiping him and standing in his presence full of wholeness and joy. That's the world that God is bringing. And that's the world that he's actually inviting us to start participating in right now. Even though it's not fully here, he's inviting us as we worship to live as citizens of that kingdom. And so the question is, as we finally come to the end of Isaiah, what kind of person can get in on this? Because as we heard um, as we read through it, the danger of false worship is really real. Our hearts are easily corruptible. We're, we're, we're led astray really easily. We focus and fixate on the wrong things really easily. And there are real consequences for that. And so God says, hey, this is the kind of person who catches my eye. This is the kind of person who I draw near to. It's the one who trembles at my word. Into verse two. This is the one to whom I will look. I, the one who is high and lifted up, the one who cannot be contained, I will look to the one who is humble. You can also translate that small and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. The God who is bigger than everything, who cannot be contained by everything, who made everything. He's looking for and he's inviting people who will see him, who will listen to him, and who will respond to him. He's not going after the powerful or the popular or the put together, the ideal kind of person. He's going after people who will listen to him, who will hear him who will stand and look at him and orient everything in our lives around him because he's beautiful, he's glorious, he's powerful, and, and he's come and spoken to us. And we don't actually have to wonder like, what humility and what trembling at God's word looks like because Isaiah has already given us a re really clear picture of what that looks like. Um, turn, turn back in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter six real quick. Um, I'm going to all, all the way back to the beginning because this, this chapter 
This um, chapter where Isaiah catches a glimpse, catches a vision of God, sets the trajectory for everything that we've talked about over the last year and few, few months. So Isaiah chapter six, which is page 571 in my Bible, probably five, page 571 in your pew Bible. Isaiah says, in the year that King Uzziah died, that's chaos, right? That's political transition. That's a lot of uncertainty. I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne. So he says, hey, the king is dead, but the real king is always reigning, always sitting on his throne. He's high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood seraphim, each had six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. These are weird, these are weird creatures, right? Six wings. Um, they're powerful. They're majestic. They're sinless. And they can't even look at God. They have to cover their faces when they're in his presence because that's how big he is. That's how powerful he is. And these seraphim are calling to another. They said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. To be humble, to tremble at God's word, is to see God for God. To see him as he actually is. To accept him as he actually is. And then to view yourself like who you are in relationship to him. Humility doesn't mean to be like you, you're constantly down talking yourself, constantly saying, well, I'm not that great. I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not whatever. No, humility is just seeing God and responding appropriately with awe, with trembling that this God has chosen to speak to us. And so a central part when we talk about worship, what worship is, is listening to what God has said responding appropriately to what God has said, which is why we even preach sermons in the first place. Like you, you, you guys do not need to hear from me for 35 minutes a week. It's not gonna make your life that much better. What you do need is God's word. What you need is to hear what God has to say. What you need, to, what you need is to hear who God says he is and how you can be caught up in him, how you can follow him, how you can know him, how you can love him. And he says, I see it when people hear my words, when they start to grasp their significance, when they stand in awe at the power and seriousness and love of this God. And when we tremble at God's word, when we hear his word, when we um, come to him on his own terms, it's actually healing for us. It actually brings us back to what we were created for in the first place. Because we were, we were made to worship. We were made to experience something bigger than ourselves. And when we actually like, have experiences of awe and transcendence, um, it does something in us. 
It changes us. In 2018, um, a journal did a study of um, experiences of awe and transcendence in veterans who um, were experiencing PTSD symptoms. And they found that people with PTSD actually had their symptoms reduced when they had experiences of awe and power. They actually said that that led to um, wholeness in relationships, wellness in health. It's like we were made to stand and look at something that is bigger than us, that's more powerful than us. It actually does something inside of our heart and soul to click us back to what we were originally made to do, which is what God is inviting us to. God is inviting you to find your salvation, your healing, your wholeness in him by worshiping him, by standing before him. You're not going to, like, and he's the only place where you can find it. We, I hear people talk all the time. I, I, I talk all the time like, hey, I want to be part of a cause that's bigger than myself or I want to be part of a community that's bigger than myself or something that is more meaningful and more beautiful than kind of like my typical everyday life. And God is saying, hey, you, you find that in me. If you want to know where to get that, look at me. And there are tons of obstacles, right? We get bored so easily. Like the... The second that we feel any kind of sense of boredom, we trade the effort that it takes to hear the word of the Lord and trade it for cheap substitutes like our phones or something that will entertain us or make us forget about the things that are going on in our lives. We try to find transcendence in all sorts of different places, but we can't find it anywhere other than God. And that's the warning that God is is giving us all throughout Isaiah. So if you turn back to um, Isaiah 66, That's why there are so many warnings in this chapter, like in verse 17. Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go into the gardens, falling one in the midst, eating pig's flesh and the abominations and mice, shall come to an end together, declares the Lord. What the heck is he talking about there? He's talking about um, the tendencies of these people to kind of mix and match different religious practices that they thought could give them what they were looking for that they thought could give them the answer to the hole inside of them, that they thought could give them transcendence. And he says, there's no life in that. There's no life at the end of that. There is life and flourishing by following him. And God also warns against cynicism in these verses. In verse 5, He's talking, he says, says, hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brothers who hate you and cast you off for my name's sake have said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. But it is they who shall be put to shame. That's cynicism. It's, It's people hearing everything that God has to say and saying, yeah, sure. Let God, let God show it. He's been saying it and things definitely do not look the way that he's describing it right now. It's cynicism. And God says, hey, the end of cynicism, the end of a cynical mindset is shame. There's no life in it, which is a real warning for us because we live in an incredibly cynical world. We're really afraid to actually give ourselves wholeheartedly over to something because of the cynicism that's inside of us. 
about like, oh man, can we actually do this? Is this actually gonna, or what, what are people going to think? What's, like, what's the response gonna be if I actually fully devote myself to this kind of God? And the warning is, hey, if you keep walking down that path of mixing and matching, trying to make your own way, settling for cynicism instead of embracing hope, the end of that road and journey is actually death. The end of that road and journey is what the last verse of Isaiah talks about. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. End of the book. It ends really, really suddenly and abruptly. It does not end the way that we think it should um, end. I once heard someone say that Isaiah is a book that is in search of a conclusion. It's setting up these pictures, these expectations, these promises, setting them side by side with these warnings, these appeals to look to God, return to God, find your life in him and nothing else. But it doesn't tell the whole story. And what's crazy for us is that we actually know more than Isaiah knew. Because what Isaiah saw was this vision, this promise from God that one day a person would come who would walk in complete faithfulness before God, who would tremble at his word, who would, regardless of the cost or consequences, live in complete obedience and faithfulness to him. Isaiah speaks of this suffering servant who would take on the sins of his people. He would take them upon himself, and in return, he would give healing, life, and salvation. Isaiah spoke for the one who would come full of the spirit of God, full of a message of the love of God, the holiness of God, the salvation that God brings and bring a people back to himself, which is, of course, Jesus. Like, we, we um, know more than Isaiah did because we see how Jesus carried our sins, we see that Jesus said that he would give rest to all those who would come to him, that Jesus said, hey, if you want peace, I'm your peace. If you come to me, out of me will flow streams like living water that will bring you back to the Father. Isaiah doesn't just show us an abstract creator God who is, like, has no identity. Isaiah is always pointing us to Jesus. Isaiah is always pointing us to the grace that we'll find in him, the salvation that we'll find in him, the hope that we'll find in him. And here's what's wild. Um, at the end of Isaiah, you have this picture of the city, right? It's a renewed city. It's a beautiful city. It's a city full of life, hope, flourishing. Outside of the city over here is where everything that is evil, everything that is bad is going to go forever. It's going to be separated um, from the city. It's gonna, not going to have any part in it anymore. Evil is going to be gone over there. It's all going to be out here. What's wild is that in the Gospels, Jesus dies outside the city. He's actually kicked out of the city, this symbol of where God is living on earth. And he goes to the end of Isaiah, to the last verse of Isaiah, the place where God's justice, the place where God's judgment, the place where God's holiness meets and confronts the sin and brokenness in the world. And what he does is actually bring redemption. 
He brings life. He brings resurrection in a place where there was only death. Which, as we come to the end of Lent and as we approach Holy Week, is everything that we're staking our life on, right? Like, that's the only reason that we're here together as a church. It, 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 like, if you want um, friendships, like, I hope you find them. I, uh, that's kind of my job. That's not my job to make sure you have friends here, but it's part of my job. Um, I hope you have friendships here. That's not ultimately why we're here. We're here because we've seen this picture of the crucified Jesus who takes all of the sin and shame and violence and uncertainty and chaos and conflict of the world onto himself and judges it there. And in return, he says, hey, I'll take that. That's all the stuff that you bring. I'll take all of that. And you take my life. You take a spot in my kingdom the kingdom that he's talking about right here, where there is rejoicing, where there is peace, where there is joy, where God's presence dwells richly with his people, being put back again to what we were made for. And when we come here, we're, we're doing that to, to like have a small ta- foretaste of that, to look at God, to look at who he is, to, to look at who he is, even in the middle of all the chaos and uncertainty of our lives, because, spoiler, your life is going to be really chaotic tomorrow. And your life is going to be really chaotic the day after that. And for the rest of our lives, however long we're here, we're going to have plenty of reasons to wonder where God is and what he's doing. And so we come together every week to worship him, to look at him, to be reminded of who he is, what he's promised, what he's doing, and grow as citizens and participants, even right now, of this new kingdom that will one day fully and finally come into our world. And if you believe that, if you sense in yourself like even the smallest inkling of trembling at God's word, like you're you're a Christian, and I'm, so, and I'm so happy that you're here. And our job is for the rest of our lives to declare his glory, to be caught up in worship to him and live as citizens of his kingdom. And again, one of the ways that we do that every single week is by coming to the communion table, is by coming and, and, and actually um, tasting the promises of God. It's not just hearing about it. It's not just um, thinking about it in our mind. This is a fun new part where I have to get, a, get out of the way of the pulpit. Got to get used to this. Um, it's actually us taking in our hands, holding on to it, and tasting like, oh, this is, this is what our hope is. Our hope isn't in anything that is going to happen here on stage. Our hope isn't in anything that's going to happen like in the world politically. Our hope is always only in Jesus. And the God that Isaiah has been constantly, uh, painstakingly pointing us back to over and over and over again. And he's that same God who, no matter where you are, will come to you, who invites you to come to him and to find life, salvation, wholeness, healing in him. 
So the way that we do communion here is if you're a Christian, you're welcome to come and participate in the table. We'll have three stations up front, um, two on either side of the stage, one in the middle. Uh, The two on either side of the stage are loaves of bread and there's a cup of juice and wine. Wine is in the stoneware, juice is in the glass. You can just tear off a piece of the bread and dip it in. It's the body of Christ broken for you, his blood poured out for you. In the middle, we have a single serve station that is gluten-free. If you're not comfortable participating in a common cup or uh, need a gluten-free option, uh, we'll also have another communion station up there uh, in the balcony for everyone who's sitting up there. Um, If you're not a Christian, we're really happy that you're here today. Um, This is what we believe. Uh, We build everything on Jesus. Um, When we're tempted to despair or given to cynicism, we want to actually pursue hope. We actually want to um, believe that he is going to do everything that he said he would do. We want you to know him too. Um, Like, We want you to know him. It's what you were made for. Uh, So if you're not a Christian or if you have questions, we're going to have people who are over here who would love to pray with you. Don't take communion. um, Take Jesus. Have conversations with someone about Jesus and what it would look like for you to become Christian. We would love that if you, we would love it if you did that today. Uh, I'm going to pray and then we're going to come to the table. So Father, thank you um, that in really uncertain, shaky, chaotic places, you're certain. You're not shaking at all. You're the God who made everything, who holds everything together. This this building can't contain you. Um, The people in this room, I cannot contain you. You're going to do whatever it is that you want to do. And you promised that you would bring your kingdom. You promised that you would not turn away any who came to you. So God, I pray that you would awaken faith, that you would awaken hope, that you would stir love in our hearts and our lives, and that you would help us to live as sons and daughters who hear your voice and follow after you no matter where you're going. So Jesus, we love you. We need you. Thank you for loving us. I pray all this in your name. Amen. Come to the table when you're ready.